0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, let's uh, let's take our Bibles and let's get into the Word of God tonight. Let's open to the book of Leviticus chapter 4. This is our fifth week of study on the sin offering, and this is the fourth offering of five major sacrifices. It is classified as non sweet savor, and this offering is as described it is an offering for sin, which differentiates that from the sweet savor offerings. I know all of you are now experts on sweet savor and non sweet savor. So, non sweet savor shows Christ's death for sin, while sweet savor. Uh, symbolizes the merits of Christ's perfect life. Well, the sin offering, even though fourth in the numbers of offerings that we've studied, this is the one that occupies most of our time because its symbolism is more familiar to Christians because we learn about Christ's death on the cross. That's one of the first things that we learn about him. The penalty for our sins was paid for Christ at the cross. We are justified By Christ's death we are forgiven of our sins and that is the attraction that we have for our Lord. He saves us from everlasting punishment and that is the thing that draws people to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that we see about Him. So the death of Christ is the means of reconciling us to God and His death removes the enmity, that is the hostility that exists between man and God. And it's not just that... His death removes the hostility as if now we're just barely tolerable to God, but rather we receive status when we come to Christ. We receive adoption as His children and we become heirs of all the benefits of His rich inheritance. So that acceptance is possible because there is a sin offering and that is amplified by the sweet savor offerings as. We receive the benefits of Christ's life. So we are made like Christ in sanctification, and that causes the Father to delight in us as He does in His own dear Son. And so yes, we're not, or no, we're not just tolerable to God, but we're adopted as His dear children. Now the text for this evening, to get us back into the flow of this message, is Leviticus chapter four. The sin offering is introduced in this chapter, it is the most familiar, but we've also learned that there are, there are two offerings that deal with sin, but they approach sin, the sin problem in a different way. The second offering for sin is the trespass offering, and we've not reached that offering yet to fully exposit the purpose of it, but we did need to introduce it uh, just briefly in order to see the difference between trespass and sin offering. Uh, The trespass offering is for specific sin. That's the act of sin. Jesus prayed, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That is, those trespasses are the commission of individual sins. But the sin offering approaches sin in a different way. It deals with the root cause. It deals with sin in man's nature. He's totally depraved and corrupt. And so atonement has to be made for our nature as well as it does for our individual sins. Now, the instructions for the offering point out the universality of the sin nature. Every person has it. Nobody's born without it. All are guilty and condemned. And so in this chapter, we find a variety of people, different categories, and every one of them needs an application of a sin offering. So we resume in the third part of our outline this evening, and that is the categories of sinners. First, before other sacrifices are made, the priest must make an offering for his sin. This is in Leviticus 4, verse number 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done... "...and shall do against any of them, if the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let him bring for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bullock, without blemish, unto the Lord, for a sin offering." So the first category of sinners is that of leadership. An offering must be made for the sins of leadership. Aaron stood in the the place of Christ as the priest for the people... And before he could accurately represent the work of Christ in priesthood, his sins, that is, his sin nature, had to be purged. Now, since Christ didn't have a sin nature, Aaron must offer a sacrifice that removed the corrupt nature, and uh, when he approached it, when he approached God with the sacrifice and made that sacrifice, it's as if. He doesn't have the sin nature because now he's representing Christ. Now, Christ had neither a sin nature nor personal sins from which sin could arise or sin nature from which sin could arise. And so before a priest could make a sacrifice for the people in order to represent Christ, he had to make that appropriate sacrifice for himself. Now, in the last message, I went into the details of the altar, the fire of the altar, the sprinkling of blood before the veil, uh, the... uh, uh, blood that's applied to the horns of the altar of incense and then to the collection of blood at the bottom of the brazen altar. And so there we saw in that message of symbolism on top of symbolism, all of these activities had to be done. And each of those is done in every category that we see in chapter 4. So the amount of blood used in Israel's offerings were staggering. And, of course, the blood is the key critical factor the scripture says without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin and and it's through the blood then that the priest established his relationship with god his perfection is seen in verse number six with the use of the number seven and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle of the blood seven times before the lord Before the veil of the sanctuary. So the priest established a relationship with God. And if he didn't do this. He could not worship. He's not worthy to approach for the sins of the people. Until something is done about his own sin nature. Now we're going to touch on this point later on. He was only a man. And so the sacrifice for himself had to be often repeated. Why? Why? It's because these offerings are not real satisfaction. Now, they are indeed real sacrifices, but they don't accomplish the reality of the thing they symbolized. These offerings, as the Word of God said, never take away sin. Only the real offering can remove it from them. And so, until the antitype came, the one for whom these offerings stood, until he came, these sacrifices have to be repeated. And it's only when Christ completed his work on the cross that he ended these sacrifices forever. That's what Hebrews explains. And so in that, Christ is what you might say is the seven times sprinkling. He's the perfection of the type. Now to finish the sacrifices for the priests, I want to mention something that deserves much more time than we have to give tonight. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about this, and then later on we're going to study the priesthood itself. Now we're studying sacrifices. Later we want to take a look at priesthood. And uh, so this particular point's more than we can do uh, in this study tonight. But I do want to mention it. That because Aaron was a man, he does have to deal with sin in his nature and his individual sins. That's necessary for him. But it has no counterpart in Christ. Jesus then is not made a priest after the similitude of Aaron because of this issue, the sin issue, and because in Christ there are two offices, and that is both priest and king. So Jesus is not a priest after the Aaronic order, even though Aaron is a type of him. Jesus is not a priest after the Aaronic order, but of the Melchizedekan order. Now, Melchizedek appears in Genesis in the time of Abraham before the law... Before the pro- first promise of grace was made to him, Abraham is the father of the nation, the, the father of the faithful, and he paid tribute to a priest that was a priest before the priest of the law. Before the covenant of, with Abraham was renewed in Genesis 15, Abraham received the blessing uh, of a priest. This is in chapter 14 of Genesis, verses 18 to 20. If you want to mark that in your Bible, I think we have it on the screen, but you might want to look at it as well. Genesis 14, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, And he gave him, that is Abraham, gave him tithes of all. No explanation is given for Melchizedek. No one knows where he came from. He just shows up. And that's purposeful and very important. I'd like you to turn to the book of Hebrews where we see more. Just as uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Just as... uh, or Jesus, rather, I should say, was not a priest of the Aaronic order. He, he predated Aaron as a priest, and he's foreshadowed in the appearance of this person that's called Melchizedek. And there isn't an explanation of him here, not in the book of Genesis, nor in any other place, where he came from. It doesn't say whose priest he was, except to say he's a priest of the Most High God. The Bible doesn't tell us of what people he is a part It doesn't say how he became a priest, he's just there. Now, unlike others who show up in Scripture with a genealogy attached to them, Melchizedek had none. Now, the Aaronic priesthood was always concerned about genealogy. It had to be traced, it had to be verified. In the return of Israel from the captivity, you can see in Nehemiah that there were some who claimed the priesthood, but they were denied to be priests because they could not be proven. Now, while you're, you're, you're getting to Hebrews, I want to read to you from Nehemiah. Nehemiah 7, verse 63. And of the priests, the children of Habei, the children of Koz, the children of Barzillai, which took one of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, to wife, and was called after their name, these sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore, were they as polluted, put from the priesthood. So there we see genealogy is important. Aaronic priesthood has a genealogy. That remains true all the way throughout the Bible. But there's nothing said about genealogy in the case of Melchizedek. He appears on the scene without father or mother, no genealogy and no descent. So we read in Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. Now, in this part of Hebrews... The author argues for the superiority of Christ's priesthood. He is better than the Levitical. He's better than the Aaronic. He has an unchangeable priesthood that is after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I know there are folks who argue about this. Uh, my opinion of it is that Melchizedek was a man, and his genealogy is left out of Scripture To show us this picture of the enduring nature of the priesthood of Christ. So we don't find the birth and death of Melchizedek recorded. He appears and he is gone. And that signifies eternal priesthood. Now there's way too much for us to consider in Hebrews 7. But there are a couple of other things that I'd like to emphasize. If you look down in verse number 23. And they truly were many priests. Because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Priest died, and priest had to be replaced. Christ is eternal, and so he never needs to be replaced. As God, he had no sin. As man, he had no sin nature, and so that qualifies him to offer himself in our place. Now, if you'll turn a few pages over to the 10th chapter, there we can see the results of the qualification. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering, oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Aaronic priests did the same things repeatedly in our text of leviticus 4 four times in one day the priest repeated the sacrifice or did the same sacrifices every day for 1500 years sacrifices were made or at least they should have been there's a period when israel didn't do what they should have done but according to god's law these sacrifices are to be made daily but then jesus came and he's not a levitical priest And so he's able to do what they couldn't do. He's superior in type of the types of Leviticus. Now, when he came and he died on the cross, there wasn't any point of making inferior sacrifices any longer. He's the antitype that answers perfectly to the type, which intends to show us that he forgives sins forever. And so without a sin nature, with no sin, there isn't any need for Christ to do as Aaron did, that is to make an offering for himself. Now back to Hebrews 7, and and I'll finish this point here. In verse number 26, it says, For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice Forced for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. So no need to offer for his sins. There aren't any because there is no sin nature. So he doesn't offer for himself. And the question has to be, for whom does he offer? Not as Aaron, for himself. For whom does he offer? Only for his people. For his people. And you can make that important theological uh, theological connection to that statement. I hope that you can. Now, in the next verse of Leviticus 4, going down to verse number 12, is the separation of the parts of the animal. After, after all that's done, the carcass of the bullock is taken outside of the camp and burned. And we're going to talk about that important part of the offering at a later time. But now we go into the next categories of sinners that we find in verses 13 to 21. Leviticus four thirteen, And if the whole congregation of Israel sin through ignorance, and the thing be hid from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which should not be done and are guilty, when the sin which they have sinned against it is known, then the congregation shall offer a young bullock for the sin and bring him before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands upon the head of the bullock before the Lord, and the bullock shall be killed before the Lord. Here we see the second category of sinners, which is the sins of society. These are the sins of the congregation. And in view are the sins of the entire society in which we live. Sin pervades all of the society. From the high classes to the low classes, from the poorest to the richest, least to the greatest. And God not only holds individuals responsible for sin, but he also holds entire collections of individuals responsible. He holds nations accountable and he judges them. Now the sins of Israel as a nation are really a stunning representation of this very, very thing that the nation of Israel was bitterly chastised and brought low in the captivity. First, there's a, a split in the kingdom. The northern kingdom kept going further and further away from God until God was, was through with them. And so he sent the Assyrians to conquer them in 722 B.C. Now, the northern kingdom then was, was scattered. It's now unrecognizable unknown to any but God. And so today, you you don't have Jews that say, well, you know, I'm an Ephraimite. There isn't a Jew that says, I'm an Aphtalite, I'm a Reubenite, or any of those northern tribes. Judah, on the other hand, stayed faithful for a little while. And they had a few good kings, a few bad kings. But they also departed from Jehovah. And a good reminder of this very issue that we're talking about is the sins of Manasseh. It was Manasseh, who sealed the doom of Judah in their wickedness. And from that point, from Manasseh, the end of Israel was in sight. Now, I want to take you back to the time of Elijah. He lived not long after David. That's about 900 B.C. And in Elijah's time, there was a severe decline in the northern kingdom under Omri, who was more wicked than all the other kings that came before him. But he wasn't the end of that. Things got worse. Things spiraled even further downward as his son Ahab inherited the throne, and he married the daughter of a priest of the Zidonians named Jezebel. The Zidonians, that's not a Star Trek reference or anything. That's people that actually live, Zidonians. And uh, Elijah was, was just always this perpetual thorn in Ahab's side. He continually rebuked the royal family for their sins. Elijah had the power of the entire kingdom against him. And so he thought, I'm the last one who's standing for the truth. After he had his victory at Mount Carmel, he fell into fear and despair. And God found him hiding in a cave. And he said to him, no, you're not the only one. I have 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to the image of Baal. Now the point of there's always a remnant of believers. In a sinful society, God always has his people. But sadly, the remnant is not able to keep the judgment of God from falling on all. Now, he'll, he'll judge the sinful society. And when those sins are too great in the society, the hammer falls on that entire system. Now, in this country, we're in perilous danger of that happening. There is a remnant of believers. You and I, tonight, Berean Baptist Church, we are a remnant of believers and there are others that are like us, but we're not enough to keep America safe. The sins of society are beginning to overwhelm the society. The influence of Christianity is greatly diminished. Preachers pound the pulpit about bringing America to repentance to save the country. But folks, I'm afraid, I just don't believe that's going to happen. I don't think we're going to be saved. Now, we need that preaching. We need to keep talking about repentance, but we don't have a political savior. I think that we've crossed the boundary line into the sins of Manasseh, and God is holding back judgment only for a time. And we are now in a Romans chapter 1 situation which describes wickedness so full that it becomes the last straw. The last straw of society is when it descends into homosexuality. History proves that to be true. When that sin is normalized, when marriage is upended, when people are applauded for transgenderism and children at the age of six years old are given hormone treatments to, to suppress puberty, then you can, mar- you can mark it down that we have lost the image of God. So what's next? God gives people up. He gives them up to their lusts to burn in their bodies, men with men and women with women. And then Romans one twenty eight happens. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now, what that's talking about is the reprobate mind is past the point of repentance. And you might say, well, how can that be? How could you ever... Get past the point of repentance. People can repent at any time, can't they? And some say that it, it's our decision to repent and believe. But haven't you read Romans chapter one? You see the scriptures. Haven't you read first or second Timothy two twenty five to twenty six, which says, "In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them." repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil which are taken captive by him at his will or what about acts eleven eighteen? when they heard these things they held their peace and glorified god saying then hath god also to the gentiles granted repentance unto life there we see god grants repentance Can you see that God doesn't grant repentance to everyone? If someone says, well, you decide, then God decides, that's nonsense. If they say, well, you elect to be saved and then God elects you, that is confusion of massive proportions. That upends the sovereignty of God. It's the wrong kind of preaching because that's not the character of the God of the Bible. And so what happens when God withholds repentance? He stops the gracious influences of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that we read that very thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning? The exact thing that I'm telling you right now, it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that God can withdraw the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the only one who's going to grant repentance. And so when God does that, nobody repents. If God doesn't grant it, we don't repent. There isn't any hope. And so we might be well past the time when society will be saved i don't have a prediction for how long that lasts but i can tell you i I don't think that we need to expect a godly era of the pilgrims to happen again we're not going to have a josiah president you know josiah was the grandson of manasseh he instituted reforms and things were good for a while but the sins of manasseh had already sealed the fate of the kingdom The remnant was not enough to overcome what would happen to them. So today I don't think we're going to have a Josiah president. Our choices are Trumps and Clintons. Dumb and dumber, bad and worse. Now we we kind of lost track here with Manasseh. His sins were too great. And so even after that brief period of repentance with good King Josiah, Manasseh's grandson, that wasn't enough to save them. Manasseh's Sin sealed the doom. And so here's what happens to society. The righteous are judged with the wicked. We won't lose our salvation. We don't need to worry about that. We're not going to suffer eternal punishment. That doesn't happen. But we can't escape the temporal judgment. We are in the society. And so when the society goes down, we all get the blunt force trauma from God. You know, there ought not to be a preacher who stands in the pulpit and gives anybody any hope for what the government will do. We don't need to fear the outcome of elections. Politics is not our savior. Uh, you, You vote responsibly as a Christian, and well, you should. Good citizens do. But the political process is not what we care about most. We concentrate our hope in God. Now, after we saying, or read that Second that Thessalonians 2 chapter this morning, oh, just a, a powerful passage of Scripture. What do we sing next? My hope is in the Lord. After reading all of that, my hope is in the Lord. That, that stands good here. All is well with Christ. All is wrong without Him. So there has to be an offering for the entire society to save it. In Israel... It was sometimes the sin of one person that brought judgment. You remember, Achan sinned, and all of Israel suffered. His sin was enough to stop the, the campaign to, to win against Canaan and possess the land. For a time, it was stopped because of one man's sin. Now, Israel had a mighty victory at Jericho, but then they lost that little Ai, And that's because God is in one and he's not in the other. That's the whole determining factor. Where is God in all of this? And so we ought to be aware that this also happens in churches. That one unrepentant sinner can stop the progress of a church. And if the church does not discipline and correct and remove the offender, there's a cancer that grows that affects all. So what does the pastor do about that? Well, this is what he strives for, Acts 2 verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. All in one accord. Verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Verses 46 and 47, And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. Philippians one twenty-seven. Only let your conversation be as it become of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Ephesians 4, 3-6, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So this is what we strive for. We strive to get everybody Unified. Get everybody on the same track in what we're doing here. And if we fall short of that goal, if we're not all together in this doing the same thing, folks, we are in trouble. Now, here's a wonderful thing I think about our church. After 15 years, I believe that we are doctrinally cohesive. Now, occasionally, there's a fly in the ointment, perhaps, but I know that I can safely depend upon this church to uphold the doctrines that we find in our statement of faith. I told the fundamentals class that I feel called to a special ministry in this church. That that I believe that God, one of the reasons that God called me here was to teach this church about the truth that Baptists have believed for centuries. And about historical doctrine that is biblical doctrine. So why do I preach doctrines of grace? Why do these dominate my preaching? It's the worldview. I can't look at Scripture through any other lens but this. It's Christ's doctrine, the Apostles' doctrine, that colors every opinion that I have of the Scripture. And that's the way it should be. If that's not true, then I'm not true to God's Word or to the calling to preach it. But I digress on the current subject. We do need to be very careful about opposing the doctrines that are taught in our church. And why should we? Because at this point, it's not the pastor that you oppose, it's the unity of the faith of the church that you oppose. And that's a very serious issue. We expect members to rebuke error when they hear it. So an offering is brought for the sins of the congregation. We're a sinful society, and that has to be made right. So the sin offering has to cover us in order to receive God's blessing. Well, now we move into the third category of sinners. This is in verse 22, When a ruler has sinned and done somewhat through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord his God concerning things which should not be done and is guilty, or if his sin, wherein he has sinned, come to his knowledge, he shall bring his offering, a kid of the goats, a male without blemish. So number three is the sins of rulers. These aren't religious rulers. We've already talked about that with priests. These are civil rulers, those who were appointed earlier by Moses to help govern the people. You can read about that in Exodus 18, verses 13 to 22. I'm not going to turn there. You can make a note of that scripture, Exodus 18, 13 to 22. Read about that later. But these are civil judges, and they were expected to be fair and equitable in their judgments. These are representative of rulers, kings, governors, magistrates, court judges, and so on, anyone that has the responsibility of enforcing civil laws. Now, the next question, or a question that I should ask you, is do you think that it could be a possibility that our rulers have a sinful nature? Does anybody doubt that? I mean, they 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 remind us almost daily what scoundrels they are, don't they? And it's really a good thing. We don't have to bring sacrifices anymore for the sins of the rulers. We would deplete all the cows on Harris Ranch on I-5 in California alone, just covering the sins of the rulers. So we, 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 don't long, we no longer ex- expect morality from our leaders, and so we get what we got. We get immoral leaders. But still the Bible, you know, the Bible still says, pray for your leaders. They need it now more than ever. I referenced this this morning. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And that that exhortation is interesting. It mainly concerns, as I said this morning, that the government would leave us alone. Not to interfere with the exercise of our religion. And we see that application in the seven churches in the Sunday morning uh, series. So we pray that rulers would just stay out of our way. And stick to their own business. Their business is to make civil laws, not religious ones. And not to make laws that oppose the God who ordains government. I also think that we ought to pray that churches... Stay out of government business. America is not a theocracy. It it wasn't in Paul's time. There's no command in the Scripture from Paul or anyone for the church to get in to the government's business. That's exactly what led to church-state persecution. So let the church stay out of government, and what we need to do as Christians is pray for our leaders as individuals to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, this we know about government. God does ordain it. Romans 13:1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Now, whatever God ordains, he ordains for good. So even when we have a government that has wicked leaders, those can still have a positive impact. God expects them to administer laws fairly and justly. He ordains their work for our good. So, so which, of, which of the laws or which laws that are made is the government to, to try to do something with, to enforce? Well, we'd have to say it's not the first half of the Decalogue. The government has no business in that area. That's worshiping the God that we want to worship and all those things. That's not government business. That's what led to church state government. The government deals with the second part. Man to man, not man to God. Now, if our, if our government was theocratic, I wouldn't say this. I, I, I wouldn't say that. And when Christ comes to reign, it won't be like that. Israel was theocratic, so there was no freedom of religion. There's no freedom from religion. In other words, nobody worships the God of their choice. They only have one choice. If their choice is Jehovah God, fine. But there's no other choices. And when Christ comes to rule the world, you can be sure of this, he will permit no other gods. Forget about freedom of religion and God's righteous kingdom because it is a sin not to worship him and him alone. Now one more point to make here. Rulers have a greater responsibility because of their position. They're influential, thus they have greater accountability. So... James 3.1 works for both religious leaders and civil authorities. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. And so the abuse of power uh, and the use of power to promote evil rather than good, that's not going to go unnoticed in God's courtroom. And so many of our leaders will stand to the day of judgment. And because of that responsibility, God's going to say, because you have greater responsibility, heat the furnace seven times hotter. Now lastly, our fourth category, the sins of individuals. Verse number 27, And if any one of the common people sin through ignorance, while he doeth somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done and be guilty, "...or if his sin, which he hath sinned, come to his knowledge, then he shall bring his offering, a kid of the goats, a female without blemish, for the sin which he hath sinned." So now we see the spectrum of the sin nature is complete. It's all across the board, from priest to the common person. And at this point we can say, it's down to you and me. "...all have sinned and come short of the glory of God." And so there's an offering that must be made in every category because all are born with the sin nature. Now, notice in verses 13, 22, and 27 is the repetition of the word ignorance. If anyone sins through ignorance, now that means unintentionally. There is no sacrifice in the Bible for intentional sin. You can't just go out and commit sin and say, it's okay, there's a sacrifice for that. No, God doesn't, doesn't ordain sacrifices for intentional sin. So maybe a person's been taught wrongly. Maybe their religious education is faulty. We don't have to be conscious of sin to be guilty of sin. You say, well, how can you say that? Well, Paul said, and this is before he's saved, he said he persecuted Christians, but he did it ignorantly. here's a man who knows God's law as well as anybody better than most, and he sinned ignorantly. But ignorance is not an excuse for his sin. You see, the fallen nature does not prevent God from demanding moral responsibility. Man lost the capability of fully understanding the consequences of sin in the fall, but that doesn't mean God has to lessen the requirement of perfect obedience. That's because the fall is man's mistake, not God's. Now, for those who have Pelagian views, the argument is God will not command what we can't do. Well, then you'd have to look at this. Then what does God do with sins of ignorance? If he can't command us not to sin, or can he command us not to sin if there's something we don't know is a sin? Yes, he still does. He sure can. Perfection is always demanded by God. But we thank God for this, that because of the the sacrifice of Christ is enough to satisfy the problem of the sin nature, we don't have to worry about condemnation because of ignorance. Even if you don't know that you committed a sin, I'm not saying that's okay. I am saying that the sacrifice of Christ is enough to cover that. God covers it all. So, You don't have to be concerned every day about, did I sin in ignorance? As a Christian, Christ's death covers that. Now, there isn't any other religion that has a sin offering. None are going to be saved without a sin offering. The sin nature keeps people out of heaven, so that makes it clear. There isn't anybody that will be saved by their works. No man can be perfect, and so the sin nature prevents anybody from getting to heaven. So you can't go to heaven with that sin nature still on you. You have to have a sacrifice, and you get the sacrifice in Jesus Christ and believing in him. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Only Jesus, by the perfect imputation of righteousness, restores the image of God in us. That's the only way it can be done. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and it's good to get down into your word, into the depths of it, and see how these things interconnect. Thank you, Lord, for saving grace in Jesus Christ, that it's all of you, none of us, because if it were any of us, we know that the sin nature would foul everything up. Everything that we do has the taint of sin on it. And so we must have the regenerating regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for that grace that you've given in Jesus Christ. Bless our people tonight from the study of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707 584 7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronit Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.